as we dig into Romans. And um, yeah, it's great to be here. I don't know. Um, I, like Shane, I rocked up very out of it, tired, a bit feeling like, oh, here we go again. But I don't know, just over this hour already, how much I feel lifted by fixing my eyes on Jesus and his grace. And I pray that that'll be our experience as we look to his word this morning. So as we get into it, if I was to say to you, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Hands up if you want good news first. How many people are like, give me the good news and then I'll come crashing down after that. That's fine. How many of you want bad news first and then sweet? All right, most people get. Well, then most people will be happy with Paul because I feel like that's essentially what he does here in the first few chapters of Romans. He has this introduction and he says, look, I'm Paul. I've been saved by this good news, the gospel, Jesus. Um, I want to come to Rome. I'm writing to Rome. And then he says in verse 16, 17, sort of this summary verse of chapter 1 and the whole book, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but it's the power of God to save. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he's thinking, that sounds good. And then the very next verse, he says, for the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. And you're just like, okay, total shift. And there's just like a couple chapters of like heavy news. It's like... It's just basically Paul saying that we're all sinful. And then finally in chapter 3, there's this shift into the good news. So that's where we're going this morning. And I think it's important for us, I know we talked about wrath, wrath and judgment last week, but it's important for us to, I think, sit with it again as we read the first half of chapter 3 to actually understand the bad news. Often we skip over it because it makes us feel uncomfortable we skip over it because, oh, I don't feel so good. Like, I don't like thinking about the bad things I do. But it's important to sit with it because, I mean, Paul spends nearly three chapters on this stuff. So we can't just skip over it in a week because it doesn't make us feel good. We need to sit with it, allow God's Spirit to convict us so that we can get a greater appreciation for the good news that he explains so clearly throughout the rest of the book. So, First up, no one is righteous. Bad news first. Paul essentially is saying here in the start of chapter 3 that we read is that we are all guilty and that we are all without excuse. If you follow through the movement of the first few chapters, basically what we get in chapter 1, we get that the um, Gentiles are guilty. Paul is, all the language in chapter 1 is they. They, 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 saying that the Gentiles are guilty. Chapter 2, there's a shift where it says, you, 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 and he's talking to the Jews and saying that they're guilty. They've been judgmental, they've been hypocritical, they are just as sinful. And then chapter 3, Paul brings it together to say, well, in verse 9, that both Jews and the Greeks are under sin. And then we get that passage that starts, no one is righteous, not even one. And in that section, Paul starts showing off a bit. He says that there are, he basically quotes six different passages of the Old Testament. Like he wouldn't have had, he wouldn't have been able to like go back to, you know, his books and like copy the notes. Like he just knows this stuff. He quotes it, six different passages explaining that no one is righteous. Finding its almost summary 
in verse 19, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. That's essentially chapter 1, 2 and 3. That's the movement. You need to see that. That Paul is trying to say that we've all done this. We are all guilty. We are all without excuse. We are all held accountable to God. And then it finds, he sort of says it neatly, in a nice way that probably many of us have memorized, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now why does, why does Paul do this? Paul's writing to Christians. Why does he do this? Why does he spend so much time explaining how we're all sinful? And as you read through it, I just don't think, I don't think the point is to say that we live in a big bad world. That the people outside of these walls are like terrible people. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is to recognize that actually we're all bad people. We are all in the same boat. We have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And so as we listen to that, as we read that, as we wrestle with that, we need to look at our own hearts, allow God's Spirit to convict us of that, and that we would know that we're all in the same boat. And that has implications later that we'll talk about. But for now, I want to focus on this word of fall short. It literally translates to lack, so that everyone has sinned and they lack the glory of God. Which, once again, if you've been reading these chapters, if you've been listening over the last few weeks, if you've been looking at it in your life groups, in chapter 1, verse 23, it says that we have exchanged the glory of God for the things of man. That we've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Exchanged the creator for the created. So the reason we lack the glory of God is because we've exchanged the glory of God. We've swapped it out for something of much less worth. And so when we're talking about sin, it's not so much we don't it's not so much of asking the question, have you broken the rules lately? Because I think that's often how we define it. We define sin as like these are the rules, do and don't. If you break the rules, then you've sinned. And obviously that's true, there's a big part of that. But I think the deeper question we need to ask ourselves is, like, what am I worshipping? Like, sin is a worship issue, not so much a moral issue. The moral issue is important, but when you commit the moral thing, you've got to actually look at, well, why did I do that? Where's my heart in that? What am I worshipping? What am I focusing on? Where have I exchanged the creator for the created? the things of heaven for the things of this world. Sin is mainly an issue of worship. Who is the focus? And as we heard last week, when God is not the focus, it all begins to fall apart. That's what Paul very clearly says in chapter 1, that because people didn't acknowledge God, even though they knew him, it then led to this, which then led to this. And like Andrew said, it was the orienteering thing just went off course because the first step of not acknowledging and honoring God was not there. So we need to ask ourselves, actually, what is it that I worship? When I 
miss that step, when I go off course, what is that actually saying about my heart? I love this definition of worship. Worship is whatever captures your mind's attention, your heart's affection, and your soul's ambition. Worship, what's, what, what are the things that you're thinking about? What are the things that you're focused on? What are the things that you desire, that you long for? What are the things that you are living for, that you are you know, directing your life towards? What's gathering your attention and your affection and your ambition? So Paul has been saying that no one is righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because we've exchanged the glory of God. We've swapped it out for things that aren't him. And we have worshipped created things rather than creator. John Piper says that every human being has scorned and trampled the glory of God. That's like strong language. Scorned and trampled the glory of God. How? By giving it two seconds worth of attention in their lives. Like in reality, that's the ultimate sin. And that's what Paul's getting at, is that we've sinned and we've fallen short of the glory. Like we've lacked it because we've just given it two seconds of attention. I mean, think about your own life. How much have you like considered God, contemplated God, spent time with him, even just this weekend? Like since Friday, when you clocked off at work, you've had a bit of free time, maybe you've done some different things. Like, How much has God been at the forefront of your life and of your mind and of your heart? Like, I've got to confess, like, not much. <laughs> been caught up doing all these other things. And so we find ourselves in this place that the Reformers termed total depravity, totally depraved. By nature and by choice, we have turned away from God. We've rebelled, we've sinned, and we are broken to the point where we are unable to reach out to him. Like that is the depth of bad news, <laughs> that we have sinned and that we've fallen short. This is what Paul says. I don't know about you, but like Paul is like, he's right up there in terms of like Christians. Like he's, you know, arguably top five. You know, wrote half the New Testament. Did missionary trips all over. Went through heaps of suffering, and this is what he says in um, chapter seven. He says, "Wretched man that I am." I'm like, Paul's like. The one who's like should be saying, like I'm okay, <laughs> like I'm pretty bad, but like I've I've got this going on pretty well. But no, he says, wretched man that I am. Like I have done this, I have sinned, I have fallen. Like we are all in the same boat, to the point of where he says, like who will who will deliver me from this body of death? I can't do it. I can't save myself. I can't get out of this mess. And what does he say? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. He's the one. And that's where we get this shift in chapter 3. We get this shift into good news, this shift into hope, a way forward. Good news. I mean, just look at 21. 
It's got to be one of the best buts in the Bible. There's my first dad joke for the day. Shane read out the other one in Ephesians 2. This shift of like, it's sinful, we're bad, but God, but now, but now a righteousness of God has been revealed. It has been made known. It has been manifested. And this passage, we're going to fix our attention on this passage for the rest of our time, this little paragraph. John Piper calls this paragraph the greatest paragraph in the Bible. Big call. So if you're not paying attention, you have to pay attention now because John Piper says it's pretty important. In the original language for Paul, it's one sentence. These next five verses are just one big sentence. It's like Paul is just unveiling all of this important stuff like he's clearly made it clear that we're all sinful and then he just unloads the good news in one flowing sentence and it's all around the righteousness of God which links back to chapter one which Paul said this is the good news Glenn talked about it a couple weeks ago that the gospel in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed righteousness as Glenn explains, simply means being right with God, having a right relationship with Him. The original Greek word was often used in a legal setting, like in a court setting. It means to have a verdict of approval, that you are morally right and clean so that you get a verdict of approval. So when we're talking about the righteousness of God, it means that we've been given a verdict of approval by God, even though, as we've read, our sinful record is perfectly clear. The guilty sentence is charged out, and yet God changes the final verdict. That is the good news. So how does this happen? We're going to break down this passage, and um, we're going to look at three key words that are used. The words justified, redemption, and atonement. And like I said, for some of you, this will feel like Sunday School 101. For some of you, it'll be like, wow, that finally makes sense of that word that I've read all those times and not know what it means. But for all of us, I want to pray that as we look at this, we would actually get a greater appreciation for what Jesus had done for us. Like Shane encouraged us this morning, that we'd actually fix our eyes on this grace and that would take us out of our tiredness and our ness of life and actually give us hope and life again. So firstly, justified. Was this justified freely by his grace? Justified has the same root word as righteousness. They are very much linked. It literally means to be declared right. Or as Glenn said the other week, to be it's just as if I never sinned, to be cleared righteous, to be cleared of all charges, cleared of all punishment relating to our sins. Ian Howard Marshall, the scholar, he says, to be justified means to be put into a right relationship with God, in which the sins that people have committed are no longer counted against them, and consequently, they can enter a relationship into God, characterized by peace and not by wrath. That, that is good. I've been put into a right relationship with God. My sins are no longer count, counted against me. 
one of the beautiful things about this word justified is that it's passive. It's a passive verb. So for those of you who are like, remember year 7 English, a verb is a doing word. Passive means is that it's done to you. It happens to you. It's not something that you do. The only active verb in these paragraphs is sinned. We all sinned. That was the active thing that we did. But the passive thing that God does is this. He justifies us. This guilty charge is not one that we can work our way out of. It's not like if we just do our good behavior for you know, a year or two that we'll fix our lives and we can you know, work off a few years off our sentence. No, no one is righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short. And yet God justifies the ungodly. That's Romans 4, 5. It says that God justifies the ungodly. It's not about your work, but it's about his. And I know for many of us, we go, yeah, yeah, I know that. But do you actually know that? Do you actually believe that? Do you actually live that? This sense that I'm trusting and I'm resting on the finished work of Christ rather than my works, my good behavior, or my bad works, and therefore sitting in shame and guilt. It's not that we are become a Christian and we're automatically perfect and we no longer sin anymore. But the beauty of justified is that we're seen as righteous. We're declared right, even though we're guilty, even though the punishment is deserving. It's wiped clean. And even more than that, There's a price that's paid. See, that's what redemption points to. It says that we've been justified freely through his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption, Leo Morris, he defines it as a release through payment. A release through payment. See, the fact that we're justified, that we're seen as righteous, like that's incredible. But we cannot miss the fact that someone had to pay that price. It's not that like the debt is just forgotten about, erased. But no, the debt, the punishment is paid for. Like there's a big difference in that. Like think about redemption, redeeming, like you let's say you get a voucher. Someone gives you a voucher, you go into a store, and you get something essentially for free. But it's not really for free, because someone else has paid for it. You just get to experience something for free. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think it's really important that we, we actually recognize that. That we recognize that redemption, that what Jesus has done, he has paid a price. And so redemption points us to sacrifice, and sacrifice then points us to love. Love is essentially sacrifice in action. It's laying down to yourself for someone else's benefit. It's a sacrifice that leads to someone else's betterment. And, you know, this idea of sacrifice, we hear a lot about that in our culture. We're sort of drawn to it. I mean, just think of any Marvel superhero movie. Like the climatic point is nearly always a point of sacrifice where one of the heroes will lay down their life so that the world is saved. 
think about sporting clubs, or footy, particularly footy clubs, talk a lot about sacrifice, that I'm going to sacrifice uh, my role or my, you know, I'm going to shepherd my, like, use my body to help my teammate go through. So, you know, it's all about sacrifice, about, you know, the good of the team. I mean, talk to people about their family history and how often there's stories of my parents sacrificed so that I could have this. Like, there's stories in our culture all around us because sacrifice, it moves us. It sort of captures us in a way because it points us to love. I mean, even Jesus, in even 1 John 3 it says that this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Like The Bible defines love as sacrifice. And so I really, my question around redemption is, do we feel an emotional response to the sacrifice of Jesus? I mean, spoiler alert, but Iron Man dies and everyone shed in tears in the cinema. Like, or was that just me? Like, do you know, like, we watch a movie and it gets to that point where the hero lays down their life and, like, you're like, oh, that's beautiful, that's so good. And yet we hear of how Jesus lays down his life for us and yet it seems to have no emotional, evident response in our life. And yet we say that Jesus paid the ultimate price. He was the one that gave his life for ours. He was the perfect son of God who took on the sin of the world. Like we sang about this morning. This is amazing grace. She would lay down your life that I would be set free. Like do we sing that and just go, like this is amazing. Like... Or does that like does that actually move us somewhere to the point of like yes, Jesus did do that, and that is incredible. And what else can I do but respond in praise and in worship and in obedience and in faith? Oh, good timing on that. <laughs> that nearly that, that gets you going. That gets the victory fans going, doesn't it? You start hearing that, you're like. This is what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, why we will still sinners. Christ died for us. Why we will still trampling and scorning the glory of God, while we're still exchanging the creator for the created, while we're still going our own way, Christ stepped in, gave his life for us. 1 Peter says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the point of it all, that we are redeemed, we are brought back into a relationship with him. Jesus has paid the price, and that is the beauty that we might be brought back to God. 
the price has been paid, the debt has been cleared. And I want to ask you this morning, does that capture your heart? Does that move you to respond to him? Does that change the way that you interact with God and with the other people around you? So we are justified freely by grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Because God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Atonement is the word NIV uses. The ESV uses the word propitiation. I had to practice saying that all week. Propitiation. I kept saying it wrong. These words have to do with making amends. And, and if you follow the book, if we've been following, you'll feel the weight of this word, this fact that Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. And then Paul makes it very clear that that is us. <laughs> we are ungodly, we are unrighteous, therefore wrath of God is poured out on us. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short, we're all guilty. But <laughs> Jesus comes. Jesus pays the price. And he does that as a sacrifice of atonement, as a propitiation, which literally means not just sin covered, but it means wrath appeased. So it doesn't mean that our sins are covered and forgotten about, but it actually means that they are dealt with. That God is, his wrath is appeased. Because it's been poured out on Jesus. And so instead of being under wrath, we are now children of God. This is how Jared Wilson puts it. Um, life group. If you're going through Romans as a life group, uh, all of our life group leaders should have got an outline with some recommended resources. And there's one called Knowing Romans. And it's like an online thing through the Gospel Coalition. It's free, so just search Knowing Romans on the Gospel Coalition. And it's got like all these studies, like a 12-week study on Romans. It's really good, particularly for like definitions of big words that you go, I'm not quite sure what that means. Highly recommend that. So Jared Wilson puts it this way. He says, Propitiation is a great theological term that refers to the turning away of God's wrath. A propitiating sacrifice is one that makes its recipient favorable by averting God's wrath. So the offering of Christ on the altar of the cross was a payment that made the wrathful God propitious or favorably disposed towards those who believe. Now you've probably got to read that about five times to try and like actually just read it um, and then understand it. But that's where atonement, it means at one with. We are at one with God. We are no longer under wrath, but instead we are under grace. We are no longer condemned. We are no longer separated, but we are under grace. Recipients of love. That's why 1 John 3 verse 1, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we may be called children of God. We don't deserve to be. We deserve the complete opposite. And yet, by his love and by his grace, 
He adopts us into his family. We become children of God. The debt is cleared. The price is paid. We are justified, free, and seen favorably. And that is good news. That is good news for us. And so what does this mean for all of us? We don't have time to get into it, but Paul goes on to say that God is righteous, that this is to prove God's righteousness, because God, he actually deals with sin, which he has to do to be faithful to himself. He has to deal sin, and he has to deal with it in punishment. But he proves himself righteous, not just by doing that, but by doing that in a way that he pays the price. And he proves himself to be loving and gracious. So he remains true to his character in the way that he deals with sin and sets us free. But just really quickly for us, three things that it says at the end of chapter 3 in verses 27 to 28. The first thing he says, Paul says, is that there is no more boasting. Boasting is excluded. If we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God and we're saved only by the work of God, no one can boast. No one can say that there is, I'm better than you or you're better than me. Like, there is no hierarchy, no pride within the church. And for some of us, we need to hear that. We need to lay down our pride. We need to lay down this sense that I'm portraying a life that looks good, that looks perfect. And we just need to say, you know what? We're all in the same boat. We're all broken. We're all saved by grace, not by works. No more boasting. No more pride. We're all broken. We're all saved by grace. And some of us really need to hear that, wrestle with that, what that means. The second thing at the end of chapter 3 that Paul writes about, and this is what he hammers home over the next few weeks and over the next few chapters, is that there is no more law. There's no more religion. There is no more earning your way to God. You cannot just do a bunch of good things and hopefully end up with Jesus. No, instead, the opposite is given and Paul says we are to come by faith. That the good news is received by faith. It's a bowing of the knee. It's a surrender, saying, you know what? I'm not good enough. I'm sinful. I'm broken. And then allowing God's grace in. God offers it as a gift, freely. And he says, it's to be received by faith. You've got to open it and say, you know what? Actually, I need a savior. I need grace. I need this love. And so I'm going to open this gift and I'm going to receive it, not by doing anything, but just simply letting Jesus in. He has done all the work. And so for us this morning, are you in that right relationship with God? Jesus has done the work. Do you, do you believe that? We have been bought at a price. And so may we accept, may we believe, 
And may we rejoice in that. I'm going to um, invite our music team up and we're going to finish off by singing this song, Man of Sorrows, um, which hopefully you all know at a level in which we can really sing. Like, I mean, I don't like to hype things up and this is not a hype thing, but I do think that we need to respond with joy because of what Jesus has done. The song says, praise and honour to thee. And I just pray that we can just really sing that out. Um, This is Isaiah 53. We're going to read through these verses just quickly. This is where the song comes from. This is Isaiah writing five, six hundred years before Jesus comes to earth. It's all prophetic, and this is what it says. He, which was the Messiah, to be Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of God to crush him, to put him to grief, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of God shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, he shall make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death he was numbered with the transgressors he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors Jesus paid it all for us now my debt is paid it is paid in full whom the son sets free he is free indeed so let's stand let's rejoice and let's sing and give God the praise he's due